Welcome to Career Tipper Podcast, hosted by Michelle Beatty. The Career Tipper Podcast is a motivational resource that shares career and entrepreneurial tips by industry experts that will help amazing people evolve to their professional best. And now your host, Michelle Beatty. Episode 39 of the Career Tipper Podcast features Ellen Burton. She is a change agent who's on a mission to support organizations in shifting to a culture of civility in the workplace. Ellen sharpened her executive coaching skills through certification programs like Newfield Network and her work as an executive pharmaceutical sales consultant and trainer. As a result of her career experiences and current leadership examples, Ellen's passion for workplace civility escalated. Ellen is a certified Colby facilitator and a trusted affiliate with Tierra International that travels the country as a lecturer and leadership coach. She's igniting conversations and coaching corporations and universities on various business topics, ranging from strategies to managing generations to business communication skills. During this episode, Ellen is going to share how corporate culture impacts wellness, productivity, and profit through workplace civility. I'm your host, Michelle Beatty, professional development author and coach. Ellen, welcome to the Career Tipper podcast. Thank you, Michelle. It's my pleasure to be here. I am very excited because this conversation is what I feel more people in the workplace need to understand, chat about, to make to make enjoying work more of an action that they can definitely experience versus, oh, I wish I could do this or I wish I could do that. So I'm really excited about this conversation. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'm on fire with it. It's an issue with um, a lot of workplaces, and it's not just about people being happy or having ping pong tables or free froyo in the office. It's about productivity and profit when people feel psychologically safe, and that's what the book's about. Yes. Okay. So what was your journey to becoming a trailblazer that is leading the conversation and awareness about workplace civility? Well, um, I took a look at the leadership that leadership examples that we see around the world today um, in our White House, um, and then you know on the on the macro level, and then on the smaller level on businesses all over. And I, um, not really pleased with the way that I hear stories about how people bully each other, how they interrupt each other, how some people are being shunned or ignored in the workplace. All of these things lead to a decrease in productivity. And I think that um, a lot of leaders don't really pay attention to the fact that the lack of collaboration, the um, poor um, work relationships that workers have among each other, that that actually makes a huge difference in whether or not people are working at their best, whether they are loyal to the organization. Um, And some of that negative behavior actually trickles out into customer service. So um, I watched that. I've had bad bosses in the past um, who were um, trying to humiliate myself and others, Uh, bosses who interrupted, who yelled, who um, used profanity, um, things like that. And then as I wrote the book, Michelle, I actually started to remember places where I acted abrupt and short with people and snarky and impatient too and realize that that kind of work behavior is not okay either. So um, that's been my journey. And um, it's about looking in the mirror as much as it is, is looking outside at leadership examples of leaders who are um, 
you know, talking badly about their employees, uh, the, the, the tweeting and the, and the, you know, gossiping that goes on on smaller levels. It's just not okay. And it's costing American businesses $5 billion a year on average, which most people who are responsible for profit aren't paying any attention to. I hear you. And I appreciate your transparency. It's like, well, I'm doing this analysis. I'm also self-reflecting as well. And it just makes the conversation authentic, which also I hope the listeners will connect with that in reading your work and learning more about your work that, okay, she's coming from every aspect, the recipient and also someone that unintentionally maybe not completely aware, put yourself in the same situation. So you're coming at it from so many different aspects, but just from a place of genuine, um, the genuine spirit of like sharing this. So, oh my goodness, this is great. So let's continue. So share a few examples of what workplace civility looks like at every level of an organization. Yeah. So we outline um, the three levels as um, leaders, which includes uh, C-suite executives, board of directors, um, and, um, and uh, VPs positions, and then uh, manager supervisors, and then non-supervisor employees. And at all levels, there are suggestions in the book. The book is completely solution-oriented. But what civility looks like is that people greet each other when they come in to work in the morning and they say good, good afternoon or good night when, when their colleagues leave. No one is ignored or disacknowledged. When someone in the team starts gossiping, so like there can be a conversation and then it drops down into gossip, that someone else who's sitting at the lunch table or someone else who's sitting at the desk says, hey, this sounds like gossip and we, you know, we all made a commitment not to go there. And then the person says, yeah, nobody is humiliated on purpose or by accident. Um, people, the profanity, even if that's the culture in the past, the profanity is at a minimum because we know that some people, a lot of people are offended by profanity and it doesn't show a very wide variety of vocabulary when people drop down into profanity. So we want people to show up at their best. My thought around civility is that it, it starts on the inside. People have to have a sense of self-value. Um, some of the suggestion in the book is love yourself first, and then you also understand your value when you do take care of yourself that way. But also the civil, civility, as you can imagine, root word of civilization has to do with having a feeling of belonging to something bigger than yourself. And so therefore, the self-seeking part of it and the, and the narcissism that we all can you know, drop into if we can start to let that drop away and remember that we're part of something bigger, providing a product or a service out in the world, which I think is part of the spiritual journey, um, then we tend to treat each other a little bit differently. I think that it, the root is if you feel good about yourself, you're less likely to say or do something hurtful or damaging to someone else on purpose or by accident. So civility at work looks like listening all the way through and not interrupting. It looks like asking people's opinion, whether or not you plan to use it. It looks like um, building trust and then for leaders, delegating more. For um, non-supervisor employees, it looks like holding each other accountable in a kind way for you know, kind interactions and showing reverence to one another. So um, it's very possible, and I would say to you that probably 85% of the time, that's how most workers interact with each other. I think that when we get into trouble is when we have that 15% 
the high performer who's the one who generates the most income or brings in the most accounts or who's been here for the longest time, who is a jerk and a jerk to like all the coworkers and disrespectful maybe to upper management, but they're the one who generates the most income. So nobody says anything or there are responses like, Oh yeah, that's Sally. She's always been like that. Or that's Joe. He's going to retire in the next six months or six years. <laughs> so we're just going to put up with it and it's not appropriate. So um, civility has to do with respect, kindness, um, consideration. It has to do with showing other human beings their dignity. That is that they deserve respect just for being. It has to do with humility. And, 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 and civility has to do with compassion, a show of compassion and empathy. And so if these things sound like they're part of emotional intelligence, which we know is a huge factor in professional success, you're absolutely right on. And that's part of our training. I love it. Now, we already started the conversation talking about this book, this amazing book that is your first published book called The Civility Project. And I'm really excited and congratulations for you for accomplishing this goal that you set for yourself. Ellen, please share an overview of your book and what, how it's going to help companies accomplish workplace civility. Yeah. So um, uh, I've built on research that was done by um, a couple of leaders who've been in this field and researching for several decades, including Christine Porath and her team at Harvard. And um, they've been studying this forever. And um, what I found was um, what their research shows is what I've seen uh, as I travel around the country and, and around the world talking to uh, employees on all levels. And that is um, disrespectful behavior, bullying. You know, um, uh, people who feel uh, alienated, um, there is a cost to business. So the cost can look like increased sick days, whether people are sick or not. It can look like sabotage of the employees. So I would like to say, and what's worse, you lose your, your high-performing employees. You know, when we bring someone into the workplace, um, sometimes there is somewhere around, I don't know, fifty to $200,000 spent on just getting them upskilled. And so when they come in the workplace and they finally get good at what they do the, within that 30, 60, 90-day um, area, that's fantastic. But if they're not treated with respect and we lose them, that is a lot of money right out the door. We've given them skill sets. We've, we've launched them on their next career. But because we haven't, because the company hasn't established um, a, a standard of behavior when it comes to how to manage conflict, if the company hasn't established how we collaborate, if the company hasn't established that this is the way we work together from the interview process all the way down to the leaving process. If those things aren't clearly established, then companies lose money. They lose money in days off. They lose money in sabotage. They lose money in turnover. And then they also lose money in if this becomes their brand out in the world. So if this becomes their brand, that this is not a safe place to work, then all of a sudden they're not attracting high talent anymore. If I'm, if you and I are working in a company and we're the top performers and we have colleagues that we've gone to college and grad school with, but we're not willing to bring them in here because of the way people are treated, that's damaging and it's costly. So the book focuses on three areas, wellness, productivity, and profit, and how leaders, manager supervisors, and then non-manager employees, what things that they can do to change the culture. And we're talking about a, a slight culture shift around consciousness and around um, behaviors that where people are held accountable. I love it. 
Love it, love it. Now, Ellen, let's chat a little bit more about each of the components that you just mentioned that embodies the Civility Project. So let's start with wellness. How can accountability to wellness be embedded when demonstrating workplace civility? Yeah, it's a great question. You know what's interesting? Um, I equate this in the book to um, safety codes. So um, I have a, a background working in the medical field, um, in athletic medicine, and then in the pharmaceutical industry. History. And um, I know that there is a huge amount of effort and consciousness and money spent around hospitals and medical facilities around safety, whether it's fire safety or um, uh, cleanliness um, of the facility or, um, you know, evacuation areas and all these kind of things. Um, physical safety, it's become very clear because of OSHA that physical safety in a workplace is imperative. And, and if you put those practices in place, and those drills in place and those fire, you know, alarms or whatever in place that you can actually avoid huge costs on all kinds of areas. So physical safety, we know, but there's not a lot of attention paid to psychological safety. And when people are not feeling psychologically safe, then we see a lot of symptoms. So if you can imagine that 80% of doctor visits in America are related to stress, and that's what people experience in the workplace. So we're talking high blood pressure. We're talking um, skin irritations. We're talking um, um, colds and flus and a lower immune system. Um, we're talking aches and pains in the body. And we're also talking about people who don't feel psychologically safe being more dis easily distractible. And so therefore, there may be safety issues along the lines of what I just mentioned, that wouldn't be an issue if people were paying attention and felt like they were an emotionally safe place. So the wellness piece is huge on the front end around avoiding illness and injury, but also when people start taking more days off, mental health days, literally, sick days, things like that, the organization loses productivity. So that kind of brings us into the second area about how does work get uh, damaged. Um, one, if you can't attract strong talent, if you can't attract people with a strong work ethic because of the reputation out in the world that this is not a safe place to work, um, then you're not going to, you're not going to um, have a lot of productivity in the workplace because people are doing a job and a half, two jobs. If you have someone who has made a complaint to your human resources department or to your EAP and they haven't gotten any satisfaction, no one has followed through or they've been told, oh, yeah, that's the way it is there. Don't worry about it. Buck up. It'll be okay. Then what we find is their productivity starts to drop. But here's what's interesting in some of the research. Not only does the person who's been bullied or harassed or demeaned, does their work habit, do their work habits start to decrease, but the people who witness the bullying or witness the, the, the humiliation, their work starts to decrease. So in some ways we can say, well, the, the worst part is, is that they leave, but actually the worst part is if they stay. So now you can't even get in someone in there who's a high performer because you have no reason to really fire them, but they've just decided that they're going to decrease the quality of their work because they don't feel any loyalty from the company. They've made a request. They've followed all the procedures, if indeed there are policies and procedures around harassment and bullying, and they've gotten no satisfaction. So we see productivity drop, not only for them, but also for their coworkers. And then, of course, you know, you and I have seen this in our corporate careers, you know, um, with two coworkers don't work together because they've had a conflict five years ago. Companies will start to outsource some of the work that they actually have the functional talent for 
but these people won't work together, so they have to outsource. So there's a cost there. And then I think the the final one that I've been, um, I don't know, I don't want to say uh, have benefited from, unfortunately, is um, mediation. I get called into organizations all the time to mediate for coworkers who will not work together, who are, you know, their desks are 15 feet apart. They won't talk together. They won't work together. And then um, sort of in the mode of, you know, a bad divorce, um, everybody takes sides in the department. Some people go with one person and the other and the rest go with the other person. And so then there's a lack of collaboration in the entire team. And it's just awful. And the cost is tremendous. People pay me and other people like myself, other executive coaches, mediators, thousands of dollars to try to help people to resolve their conflict because one, there's no, there's no procedure in place for a leader, a manager to resolve conflict. And two, the people aren't willing to resolve these things. And they don't understand the, the cost to the organization when they won't work together. It is a high cost on so many levels. My goodness. Okay, so we covered wellness and productivity. So let's talk about profit because the bottom line is really what makes it all go around. So what is the solution-driven approach that you'd like to see more professionals adopt when addressing and strategizing profit in the workplace? Yeah, so I, I think that um, I had seen this before in my my life, my practices as I travel the country teaching leadership seminars or as I um, fly in and out and work with executives as their coach. Um, I, what I've seen that works really well is this. Companies who are very conscious about the connection between turnover, um, between um, sick days and and, and um complaints to their HR or EAP department, when they take a look at the line items that connect to those and they realize that there may be a problem here with the way that we are, um, I don't know, assuming people know how to work together. And so when companies actually are very explicit about what their expectations are, it makes a huge difference in how people work together. I think that a lot of executives, you know, who, those of us who've been in the business world for, you know, 5, 10, 15 years, 25 years, we have learned how to behave as we've moved up the ladder. And there's an assumption that everyone else knows what appropriate business etiquette is, that everyone else knows what appropriate professional behavior is. Without organizations making specific um, outlines and um, I'm just going to say demands, but that's not it. I think it's policies and procedures and then um, supporting uh, education around what is appropriate for our workplace. People will act the way that they act. They'll act like they did at their last job. They'll act the way they act at home. <laughs> they speak to each other the way that their families speak to each other, or they act the way they did what, you know, the way that their boss does. So, um, and some of it may be right on, and a lot of it may be really off the mark of how this organization wants to be viewed. And then, as I mentioned earlier, what happens is that um, that culture of how we speak to each other actually starts to dribble down into how we deal with customers and how we deal with some of our business partners, which is not always appropriate. So, what works well and what builds profit is when an organization's leaders sit still and look at the financial outcome of the way people interact with each other, when they sit still and go, how do we want people to behave? And then that leadership team actually adopts those behaviors as well, whether it's board of director meetings, 
or meetings with um, outside uh, partners, uh, whether it's uh, internal leadership team meetings, that they decide that they're going to have rules of order, rules of uh, standards of behavior that they're going to that they're going to behave and they're going to model that for their teams. And they're also going to expect that from their manager supervisors and then from their team. So we suggest that an assessment happen at the beginning of this uh, project. Uh, and that, so we get an idea of the financial outcome of the behaviors of the workers and that coaches that uh, executive coaching happens on a C-suite level and a director level, VP level, and that um, that learning facilitation happens throughout the organization. We suggest that from the initial interviews until the leaving process, that a culture, the values of respect, dignity, reverence are always reinforced, that that value is lived, so no one has to ask what it is, um, and that reinforcements happen all the time. So in some cases, we suggest that the team attach um, promotions and raises to civil behavior, not just performance or productivity. Um, we suggest that uh, everyone be mentored and that that mentor relationship also reinforces civil behavior and interactions and that the team be empowered to hold each other accountable in a respectful way if someone acts in a way that's not in alignment with the company's values or the organization's values. And there are ways to do this. There are ways to do this without people, you know, um, stepping on each other's toes, which is what happens when people work closely together anyway. But then they can, there's ways to say, you know, wow, I was really out of line yesterday. Please accept my apology. Like these are not weaknesses. These are signs of professional maturity. And so we come into organizations and help them to establish that. But that's why the book is called The Civility Project, because these are not one-offs. These are not, you know, six-hour trainings. This is a long-term process so that people can have a long-term result. So no matter who the CEO is this year or this decade, whoever the leadership is, the value of civility continues throughout this organization. And then what we see is when people are feel safe physically, emotionally, mentally, when they feel safe and they feel like the company and their boss has their back, they'll move mountains for you. This is so they will true. Work. Yeah. So that's the connection. This is not about like feel good and singing kumbaya. This is about there are specific strategies so that people feel like they, they are, they, the company cares about them and then they will work for that company. And whether they're there for two years or 25 years, we want to make sure that they're completely engaged. And this is one of the ways that we know that we can keep employees completely engaged. And there's tons of data out there around the correlation between employee engagement and profit. Oh, thank you for that share. Now, Ellen, if workplace stability equals an inclusive work environment, what we've been talking about, the foundational elements of what that will look like, how can treating individuals' differences respectfully be realized over the long term? Yeah, so part of it is um, that we don't do this as, we don't, we don't suggest the, some of the solutions in the book as um, short-term solutions. So it's not like we're going to go in and say, um, if you just uh, never argue, then we'll be good to go. That's not it. What we do advocate, however, is um, helping all employees on all levels learn to manage their emotions. So, of course, there's going to be conflict. Of course, we're going to have different ideas about things. But there are civil ways to do that. Of course, tempers are going to flare when someone's passionate about their suggestion or their proposal, as it should be. And we have to learn to, like, manage it well. 
so that people can actually hear your idea, right? And if someone says something that is offensive, we, we, we help people learn how to say like, that was really offensive to me, right? Um, I do these practices myself with my assistants. I have to like watch my tone um, when I'm in a hurry, when I'm getting ready to do a all day seminar or keynote and I'm looking at details that my assistant may not see. And my tendency is to like snap and say like, you know, I, you know, I can't believe you didn't take care of that. And instead I have to find another way, take a deep breath and say, you know, listen, because my, I, I need these three things done. I need them done by this amount of time. It's amazing how most people don't know how to make com what we call complete requests, right? Mm -hmm. A complete request is where you um, get clear on your condition of satisfaction, that time is in the request, and then you stand still until the person acknowledges that they will do what you ask. But they also could say yes, no, or renegotiate your request. But um, was, as I teach my courses around the country, I find that most people don't know how to make a complete request. They bark in order, or they run around saying things like, you know, isn't it common sense? And so these are just some of the tools that we teach. And by the way, Michelle, there's no such thing as common sense. <laughs> common sense for me is 40 years in the workplace. Common sense for a 25-year-old who's been in the workforce for three years is not going to be the same. So we have to make explicit, clear, concise requests of one another. Some of these tools are the things that we teach over the long term that actually if they become part of the culture and if expectations are very clear, then this does turn out to be long-term cultural change where people want to work there, where people want to work for that Ellen Burton because I heard her department was awesome. You know, and then when you've got a, a leader where people say, you know, I know there's other opportunities for me, but I love working for that person, that's what we're shooting for. When you have people who say, I, you know, I can see myself retiring here, that's what we're shooting for. That's where the productivity comes in, right? Because they are loyal to the company, loyal to the customer, and they want to see things get better. And then we start seeing innovation happening. And then we start seeing when people feel psychologically self safe, we see them actually start to take calculated risk and suggest things that maybe no one suggested before, but it turns out to be just a total winner and actually can increase profits. But no one will take a risk like that if they don't feel safe, if they feel like people are gonna criticize them, if they throw out an idea at a team meeting and someone's gonna snicker or laugh or snort, then all that innovation just gets shut down. And after being shut down for a while, people will leave. That's so true. Now, Ellen, which behaviors bother you the most when it comes to workplace civility? <laughs> Because you have to like have like when you see it, like all the hairs on your neck must stand up like, oh, my gosh, like what? <laughs> yeah, you know what? I have to tell you, I'll, I'll just I have to tell them myself. I think it's one of the things where I see it and it's you spot it, you got it. I think it's where I see someone being very short and curt with a with a coworker, regardless of rank. Um, and I just cringe because I know that. I have been like that. And I know that if I don't watch myself, if I get too tired, too hungry, um, you know, too cranky, I can be like that. And so I think that's the thing when I see someone, they want to get something done. They're not watching their tone. It comes out really snappy or snarky. And then on the other person's face or, or else maybe there's a little quietness, you can hear that they hurt. They got their feelings hurt. And I, um, just this morning I was talking to a colleague. I'm on a, on a uh, uh, a volunteer job that I have, a not-for-profit. And um, I, I walked up to the colleague this morning and I said, 
Um, you know, you, you, I like you, I respect you. We've worked well together in the past and you've shied away from me for the last several months. And I, I would love for you to tell me what I've done to offend you. Um, so I can please try to make it right. Cause I'm not sure what happened. And he said, um, you know, three, four months ago, you snapped at me about something. And uh, he said, you said to me, just shut up. And I looked at him and I said, I know I've never, ever said that. And he looked at me, he said, no, you probably didn't, but it felt like it. And mm -hmm. uh, embarrassing, right? Embarrassing. And I, it hurt my heart. I don't want to treat people like that in the world. And I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings like that. And this is a man who's really smart and talented and, you know, and I just, I adore him. And I was just like, wow. And I apologized to him again. I said, I do not, you know, first of all, I would hate that I made you feel like that. And I don't want to be like that in the world. So I couldn't thank him enough for telling me the truth, right? I have had this feedback before, right? And from people who, you know, God bless them. They love me in some form or fashion and want me to be better. Mm -hmm. So what I'm learning and what I'm teaching at the same time, because we're all on a journey, right, is um, to like ask that hard question, you know, Why, how come you don't come to me for advice anymore, son or daughter? Um, what did I, you know, you seem to have kind of shut down around me. Um, you guys, we, we started off the year being really collaborative and now people aren't throwing out ideas anymore. What, what's happening? What's happening to our team? Like shut it down, shut down all the, you know, spreadsheets and kind of talk to people from your heart to their heart and say, what's, what's happening here? You know, we're not being innovative anymore. And innovation's where it's at in American business today. We're not inventing a whole lot of new things, you know? So anytime we can come up with something different, um, another way, a better way to get something done while we can increase revenue and decrease profit, or excuse me, increase revenue and decrease cost, um, we need people to come up with that stuff, but they will not do that if they don't feel safe. And so... Um, I, I think the thing that, that gets me is when I hear somebody shut someone down and thank God for my, you know, I'll call in my friend who was honest with me and trusted me to tell me the truth this time around. But I got to tell you to build up that kind of trust. It's like putting money in the bank. I think maybe Stephen Covey used to talk about this. You have to have put money in the bank of a relationship. So when there's a conflict, like I had with this fella, that there was some kind of something where he knew that I could hear what was going on with him, right? And respect his feelings. And he actually said to me, he said, you know what it was? He said, um, I said, why didn't you tell me this before? You know, we could have resolved this months ago and then we could have been back and been, you know, collaborative and friendly. And he said, I didn't feel safe. Now, some of that is his and some of that is mine, right? Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's human beings, interactions. But I got to tell you, it broke my heart. So um, a, a big part of somebody asked me the other day, they said, what did you learn writing this book? And I said, well, I learned that I'm my, one of my natural talents is not writing. <laughs> and then what I also learned is that um, I had really had to hold a mirror up to myself here. I mean, like all these memories and, you know, interactions started coming back. We tend to remember when somebody's done wrong to us. Um, but the memories of when, how we've spoken to other people and where we've, you know, um, yelled or somebody or whatever, done what, you know, things that we're not really proud of. We don't remember those things so easily. And we've got to start with looking in the mirror and then we've got to start by saying, all right, how do I want to be going forward? Cause every day starts over. So true. So very true. Now, Ellen, are there a few 
um, resources that you suggested listeners to check out in regards to workplace civility? Of course, the Civil- Civility Project, but any <laughs> other resources that you encourage them to check out? Yeah, there's a couple things. Um, Mastering Civility by Christine Porath has um, been a great resource for me. And I can't say kudos enough to her um, and her colleagues, again, who've just written some wonderful books and done years of research. Um, the Unopened Gift by Dan Newby, who's one of my colleagues uh, out of Newfield Network. Um, great work on emotional intelligence and building your emotional literacy, which is a big part of the work that we do with the Civility Project. Uh, most of us can identify um, somewhere between four and six emotions, but there are actually, Dan has identified, I think, over 200 emotions. And so it helps us to be able to understand what's going on with us so we can either, one, make a request, um, or two, just learn to take care of ourselves around how we feel. Everything doesn't have to be fixed, you know, in 28 minutes with three commercial breaks. It's like sometimes we need to just sit with how we're feeling and figure out what we need to do next. So that's a great resource. And then um, I'm a huge fan of Sean Aker, who wrote The Happiness Advantage. And in that, he talks about um, how to be more productive and some of the practices that he's learned through his years and years of research around how to be more productive. And again, it's not about like being happy, happy, joy, joy. It's about self-care, which actually improves your productivity. And so we do a lot of work with um, teams and companies and organizations for a nonprofit around how to take care of themselves better, both as an individual, as a team, as a leader, and then as an organization. So that's kind of fun too. Oh, thank you. I think I need to check out some of those books because you're always, like you said, if you're leading people or just a leader, whether you manage people or not, you want to demonstrate what you want to see in the workplace. So I will be checking some of those out. (laughs) Now, how important is it for an organization to evolve to one that consistently and constantly reinforces civil behavior? Because like you said, that's a work in progress. It's not an overnight success. It's not um, instant gratification. So what are some of the policies and processes that might, that they might want to put in place to guarantee that this culture be woven into the fabric of the organization? Yes, that's a great question. I think that one of the first things that has to happen is that um, the uh, supports need to be in place. So the EAP um, or the um, Human Resources Department has to be uh, part of the decision-making and part of the policies putting in place. These policies are great, but if they're not anchored in a value system of respect and reverence, that's going to be how we do business here, they won't work. So you can have all the policies in the world, but if people don't see these things acted out, and, you know, um, civility is all about behavior. Uh, It stems from our belief system and our attitudes. But if I can't see that this is a civil workplace, it's not a civil workplace, right? So putting these policies in the place is great. Supports look like continuous education, on all levels, starting with orientation. Um, Supports look like um, uh, team coaching or group coaching, but it also looks like support when someone has a complaint or or an issue that they are heard and listened to and that there are steps taken by the HR department that have um, accountability behind them. 
So no, no, sort of like if you send a, if you call the IT department and they put a ticket on your complaint, right, on your issue with your computer, well, complaints like that to HR need to happen too, and they need to be closed out. And they need to be closed out in committee, not just with one person saying, you need to just get over yourself. You know, this is not that big a deal. You know, can't you just um, walk down another hallway and avoid so-and-so? That is not, that is not respect for someone who's having an issue. So um, long-term and consistency is huge. It has to do with everybody being bought in. It can't just be a board of directors who makes a decision and expects the employees to act a certain way. But at board meetings, they're yelling at each other and throwing, you know, paper across the table. <laughs> you know, those practices have to be in place everywhere. The expectation needs to be made incredibly clear so that there's no room for misunderstanding. We understand that we work closely together. We understand that we're going to step on each other's toes. We understand that people get overtaxed and overtired. Um, we also understand that there are tools in place at our organization for you to take care of yourself around these things. And we're here to help each other. We're here to support each other. The enemy is not inside of these walls. The people who are going to help you be successful with the thing you're passionate about are actually sitting across the table from you. And we need to learn how to help each other and work with each other that way. Being part of something bigger than yourself needs to be part of the underlying theme, right? And so we're working towards that, not just individual success. And so we spend a lot of time with collaboration. What is effective collaboration? What is effective collaboration? How are you using your time well? And we also spend a lot of time on like how to have efficient meetings, 25-minute meetings, 50-minute meetings, no longer. And then whatever you're supposed to do during that meeting, that's what gets done. And when your part of that meeting is done, you are allowed to get up and leave so that you can go be productive somewhere else. But meetings aren't productive if people are sitting in the meeting on their laptop or on their phones checking their email. So meetings have to have an intention. The intention has to be emailed. If you want me to come to your meeting, you need to tell me what you need me to contribute ahead of time, and then I'll let you know whether I can just send it ahead or if I actually need to be there. But we need to start looking at work differently because the way we work today doesn't work. And even from, you know, I don't know, 17 years ago, with after 9-11, we had to take a look at the way we're working. Um, in America, we're working, you know, 45, 55, 60 hours a week. Um, but it's not working. We're not industry leaders anymore. We're not, you know, we're heavier than we've ever been. We're on more antidepressants than any other uh, developed country. We have more debt as individuals and in the states as well as in the country um, than we've had ever before. So something isn't working the way we're working. And I, I have a big feeling that it's a lot of it's attached to safety in the workplace since we most of us are there somewhere between, you know, four and a half to eight or nine hours a day. And so if we can get that place to be emotionally safe, psychologically safe, I have a feeling that people will start to be more productive, feel better about themselves, and then our communities will start to shift as well. High five. <laughs> I'm sending you a virtual high five. Um, I'm having it. <laughs> <laughs> Ellen, I appreciate you being a guest on the Career Tipper podcast. And we end every episode with our guests sharing their favorite quote or affirmation that keeps them creating career tipping moments. So what is that for you? Oh, it's, it comes from Jan Sincero, who wrote, You Are a Badass. And her quote, which is all over my uh, book as far as suggestions, is love yourself. If you love yourself, nobody can tell you who you are or whose you are. You know who you are. You know what your strong suits are. You know what your shortcomings are. Own it. Love it. 
work on what you want to work on, but for goodness sakes, love yourself. Mm. Yes. Love it. Now please share how listeners can get in touch with you. Uh, they can get in touch with me at coachlnb at gmail.com. And the website's the same, www.coachlnb, as in boy, dot, um, dot com. <laughs> and you can find me, Michelle Beatty, at careertipper.com and on Facebook and Instagram at careertipper and Twitter at careertipper1. Please listen and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher Radio. If you enjoyed this episode or any other episode of the Career Tipper podcast, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. Thanks so much for joining us today. And remember to be confidently you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Career Tipper podcast. We're grateful for our listeners and guests. For more resources about how to evolve to your professional best, share your comments and feedback about this episode and your suggestions for future guests. Visit careertipper.com. Until next time, be confidently you.